Right, let's turn to God's Word. And uh, we're looking at Revelation chapter 21. Um, the day of judgment is over by the time we get to chapter 21. And we read that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life has been thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan and death itself. And uh, now the stage is uh, cleared. Uh, now this old groaning sin-contaminated universe can, in the words of the Apostle Paul, be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Or as the Apostle Peter writes, um, that day, that's the day of judgment, will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I hope we're all looking forward to that. I know I am. It gets a bit grim, doesn't it, this old heaven and earth that we're um, living in at the moment. And so the scene is set for the Apostle John's um, seventh and final vision as recorded in these last two chapters of Revelation. Verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. People tend to think that was a bit unnecessary to say that at the end there. There was no longer any sea, um, because they enjoy their holidays by the seaside. You think, my goodness, won't we have to go down to sunny Porth Call anymore? But uh, no, that's uh, not what it means here. Remember all of this language. I'll just dwell on this for a moment because it just is, helps to, us to realize that all of this language is symbolic. And what is described here as in the whole of Revelation are pictures, they're picture language. We're not to be able to try and visualize them and think they are literally true. One day things are going to be exactly like this, literally, physically because they're not, and indeed some of the pictures, even some of the ones we're looking at this evening, are, are so contradictory or so multifaceted that you cannot even picture them anyway. So um, they can't be literally the case. And when we get to um, the sea, um, in, uh, in, in the Old Testament, the sea um, is, uh, represents the chaos of the nations, uh, the forces of evil ranged against God. The, the Old Testament Israelites, they were hopeless at the sea. They, they, every time they built boats, they were smashed up or, or sunk by other people, and they, they hated the sea. And the sea was always seen as an enemy and uh, uh, a symbol of, 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 of chaos. Um, the land rose out of the sea in the creation. The, the land parted the seas. The seas were out there. And uh, Everything was disorderly there. But what John is saying, telling us here then in this picture language, there is no longer any sea, would become as a great relief to those who understood that symbolism. Because what it is saying, therefore, is that um, a, a reversal of God's orderly rule no longer threatens. There's no longer any great threat to the peace and the glory and the order of God. But anyway... Uh, John is given no time to reflect on the wonders of this renewed universe. You would hope after verse 1 that he was going to go on, or I might hope, to describe the heavens. What's, what's the solar system going to be like? Uh, all these astronomical details, I'd like to know about that. How is that going to be now that sin has been banished from the whole universe? But we're not told that at all, because immediately from verse 2 onwards, 
the gaze of John is immediately drawn away to the most glorious feature of the new universe, and that is um, the holy city. And that's why it comes straight into this. There is more to the universe. There's a new heavens and a new earth, but the focus is upon the holy city exclusively. And that's a good reminder for us, not to speculate about things beyond our understanding, but to focus upon what is important. And this is the most precious thing in the universe, the most precious thing in creation is the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, that is how God regards it. And that's what we're going to be looking at. I saw, verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. So the new Jerusalem is the holy city that the old Jerusalem, the real physical city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, it's, it's that old Jerusalem. Uh, could only feebly foreshadow. So that was a foreshadowing, a symbol of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is perfect and glorious as we shall see. The old Jerusalem was meant to be the holy city, but it failed in so many ways. And this is a representation, as I say, of the true church of Jesus Christ. And we read in this passage that she descends from heaven as a bride prepared for the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a I said earlier, you can't picture these things. If you're going to imagine that one day our eyes are going to see a city such as the one I'm going to describe, as John described here, descending out of, out of the air upon the earth, I think you're going to be disappointed. I don't think it's going to be like that. How can you see a city that looks like a bride? I mean, they're just, it's, it's beyond anything that we can understand. The Jerusalem descends and she looks like a bride. And we have these two metaphors, these two pictures, these two blended metaphors, these two confused metaphors. I was always told at school, you mustn't mix your metaphors. But Revelation is full of mixed metaphors because they give you different aspects of the truth. Just think about this glorious city, this picture filling John with awe and wonder. And then think of John seeing the bride descending. And both of these different pictures inspire different feelings, different emotions. And uh, you get this, this, this idea that the awe and, and the intimacy, the picture of the city and the picture of the bride, both awe and intimacy strangely characterize the relationship between the Lord and his people. We see it from different aspects and we learn different truths. Both of them are true at this point. And notice, of course, the most important point in these early verses is that now that sin and all its effects have been banished from the new creation, it means that God may now descend and dwell upon the surface of the earth with man once again. This is a revolutionary thing. God is in the, in the midst of the city, in the midst of the church, descending to the earth. 
It's not physically going to be exactly like that, but it is symbolically incredibly powerful and important. God is descending in his church to the earth. You remember how it was in the beginning? God walked with Adam in the garden on the surface of the earth. But when sin came in, all that was ruined. God couldn't do that anymore. He has to be isolated from man because of sin. But now sin has been banished. He can descend amongst his people to be and dwell upon the surface of the earth once again. Well, I'm not going to go through it all. Look at verses 9 and 10. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice we've got the same two pictures here. They're just reversed, just to make you think. So I'm going to show you, in the earlier verses, I'm going to show you the city, and he sees a bride. Now he says, I'm going to show you the bride, and he sees the city. And uh, it's just, um, well, these, these metaphors are, are, are so mixed here. But here is John being shown these things for our benefit. Remember these words were written to little churches, struggling churches, frightened churches, feeble churches in modern-day Turkey. And, uh, you know, there's nothing in, in the, the, the book of Revelation which is um, so weird and wonderful that you can't understand it. Most of the imagery, of course, is there in the Old Testament anyway. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's, it's readily apparent what most of Revelation means. Of course, there are difficult parts. I'm not going to say it's frighteningly easy. But nonetheless, it is quite possible to, to get tremendous comfort and benefit from reading the book of Revelation. That's what's intended uh, to be given. Now, what's the first thing? The overwhelming impression that John is given by this vision of the holy city of the bride is one of dazzling brightness. Look at verse 11. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, the, the New Jerusalem is, is, is transparent because the glory, the light, comes from within. It radiates the glory of God because God is within the city. And the walls are like gold, but also like clear as crystal. It's, uh, it, we can't imagine anything quite like it. But the source of the light, the source of the light, is not some external thing. We're not going to have the sun like that and the moon like that. That's what, how the earth is, is uh, illuminated today for us. But no, we're told the glory now is within the city. And it radiates from there. The light of the universe will be from the church of God, the glorified church of God, which is glorified because God lives within her. And so we're learning really important theological things and glorious things just as we read the account and see the symbolism that's given to us here. Absolutely, um, the light comes from within. Just glance down to verses 22 and 23, for example. Verse 22 says... I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it 
for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. Where is God? Where is the lamb? Sitting on the throne in the city. The light comes from within and shines outward. It doesn't come from without and shine inward. That's important. Theologically, it's important for us to understand that that is the case in the new Jerusalem. And if we were to put it in sort of coronavirus terms, we might say this. We might say that God no longer needs to self-isolate in heaven or in a temple made with hands because the deadly virus of sin is no more. His holiness is not threatened, nor are we threatened by his holiness anymore because we're not sinners anymore. And God can once again dwell with his people upon the earth. This is the, the point, the important point of this symbolism, that we understand what we are looking forward to and how it will be. Well, let's look at um, uh, um, verses 15 and 16. The next thing to notice is the shape and dimension of the holy city, which are wholly unlike um, any city of the old creation. This is another reason why you can't actually imagine it. You may have tried to imagine the holy city coming down. You see these castellated walls and, and it's coming down out of heaven and it's square in shape. But uh, unfortunately, when you look at the detail, you can't think of it like that at all. <coughs> and you'll see what I mean in a moment. Look at chapter 21, verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. So just think about that for a moment. We're dealing here with a perfect cube. And you might say, well, why is that important? Well, it is important uh, in a number of ways, but here's the most significant ways. Um, in the tabernacle, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt and the tabernacle was built, there was a holy of holies in the tabernacle, and that was a cube. And uh, we're told the dimensions were given by God and it had to be a cube of 10 cubits. And uh, uh, that means 15 feet. Can't, what's that in decimal? Anyway, it's very convenient in old language. It's about 15 feet. And uh, 15 feet long, 15 feet high, 15 feet wide. It was a cube, like a sugar cube. Only 15 feet. And then in the temple... When eventually the Temple of Solomon was built by Solomon, again, the Holy of Holies was a, a cube, but um, God told him to scale it up. And the dimensions of the Holy of Holies in the temple were uh, 20 cubits. It was a 30 feet or 30 foot cube, 30 foot long, 30 foot wide, 30 foot high. And so the Holy of Holies was the presence of God isolated from the sinful world outside, that only the holy high priest in the temple could possibly enter, or Moses and Aaron initially, in the tabernacle, and they only because they were so cleansed righteously by God. But now in this symbolic vision of the Church of Christ, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the place of God's special presence is still represented by a cube, 
but it is exponentially larger than the representation in the tabernacle or even the bigger one in the temple. Um, because God no longer needs, it's another demonstration, the size, the sheer size of it, no longer needs to be separated from all his people. It's another indication of the fact that sin has been dealt with and a holy God can live with his people upon the earth. The New Jerusalem, we're told here, is a cube, um, not of 15 feet or 30 feet, but of 12,000 stadia, it says in the original, which is approximately 1,400 miles. So this city, this symbolic picture, remember it's, we're not talking about something literal, but the way it is presented here and is measured is that this holy city is 1,400 miles wide and long and high. And um, I sort of tried to work out what this would be, and I, I did a little sum here. Um, you heard it first here, because I doubt that anybody has pretty lights before. But the volume of the holy city is approximately the same as the volume of the dwarf planet Pluto. Now, no one's ever bothered to work that out for you before, but uh, there it is. And the dwarf planet Pluto there, the extremities of the universe, which we don't think is a proper planet anymore because it's so comparatively small, smaller than our moon, but it's still pretty big and is a huge thing. I know that's round and this is a cube, but nonetheless, the volume is approximately the same. Ample room for all God's people. It's intended to, to, to give an astonishing vision. And John was overwhelmed by the size of it. It might have looked small to him as it descended from a great height, but gradually it became bigger and bigger until he could scarcely take it in because it was so incredibly large. But that's what it is, and that's what we're meant to think. And then the apostle draws our attention to um, three external things about the city and then three internal things, features of the new Jerusalem. Now, most of this symbolism comes from uh, the prophecy of Ezekiel. Now, I don't know whether Ezekiel is the favorite reading of anybody here, but um, a lot of the symbolism in Ezekiel is copied over into different aspects of the New Testament and particularly in the book of Revelation. And if you were to read chapters 47 and 48 of Ezekiel, which we're not going to turn to, but when you get home, it could be your bedtime reading, and you will see a lot of, you'll see that Ezekiel is granted a picture of New Jerusalem as well. And a lot of the symbolism is just copied over, carried over from Ezekiel into the book of Revelation. There's not any conflict whatsoever, but, but there it is. Now, externally, let's just see what he says about the external features of the New Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. We're still in chapter 21 of Revelation. Verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates to the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we have uh, walls gates and foundations and each of those is is important let me just say a little bit about each of um, those um, the wall was not only incredibly high as we've already mentioned but it was also incredibly thick verse 17 tells us that the angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick in other words about 200 feet thick 
So, you know, the dimensions of this thing are absolutely um, in, incredible. 144, I mean, 12 times 12, all the, num all the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic. The very fact that John writes, or the Lord Jesus Christ writes from heaven to seven churches, that number is symbolic. The 12 times 12 represents all the people of God. The 12 and the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. Why did Jesus choose 12 apostles? Uh, it was to reflect the fact that the 12 tribes represent all the people of God under the Old Testament dispensation. The 12 apostles represent all of the New Testament people, and we're, we're told that. 12 times 12 is 144. Reading through the book of Revelation, you would have had 144,000 uh, three times, which the Jehovah's Witnesses make so much of, as we know, but it's 12 times 12 times 1,000, which means a huge mass of people, a multitude that nobody can number in effect, which is a representation of the whole people of God, all the Old Testament, all the New Testament saints, and they're all gathered there before God. But here is this wall. And why does it have a wall? Um, in, an, an, in ancient times, and we've got many of our old towns and cities in, in, in Wales and, and the UK generally, which have old walls around them, what were they for? They were for um, protection for the inhabitants of the city. But you might ask, well, what need could there be for a wall around the New Jerusalem? Because the whole point is that the church has no enemies left. Um, this is subsequent to um, the, uh, the last day and the judgment. But remember, what we have to remember always when we go through Jerusalem, that what we're getting are visions sometimes from the future, and this is certainly a vision of the future, but it's always for the benefit of the present. So we have this vision of the future for the benefit <coughs> of the present. And such a wall, the wall here of the New Jerusalem, speaks of the total safety and security of God's people throughout the ages. Whatever spiritual or physical foes they may face, they are always going to be kept safe by God. But the wall is also important from this point of view, that the wall separates the inhabitants from its enemies. So although the wall is a symbol, it's a great symbol because the wall symbol, uh, uh, symbolizes the preservation of God, of his people, but it also means that the people have to be careful that they stay inside the city, separate from the others. So, you know, sometimes we talk about the preservation of the saints, which emphasizes the sovereignty of God in keeping us safe. And sometimes we talk about the perseverance of the saints, which puts the onus on the saints and says, yes, but they have to persevere in their faith. Well, both are true. Both sides are different sides of the same coin. And a wall symbolizes this, speaks of the preservation of God, keeping us safe throughout this world, throughout all the difficulties, spiritual and physical, that we might have. And it also it emphasizes the separation from the world. We are in the world physically, and tomorrow or whenever you'll be mixing with um, people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and think it was not a waste of time that you were here this evening and uh, who would drag you down spiritually if you got contaminated spiritually by them. We make friends with people who are Christians, non-Christians, as we should. 
And uh, the fact of the matter is that culturally we're part of them as far as we can follow the patterns of this culture. But spiritually, we are separate. And that spiritual separation is a very important thing. We have totally different aims and values and goals, purposes in life. We see life very differently from an unbeliever. And so it's very important that that should be maintained. And I think all of that is there implied in this picture that's given to us of the walls. So let's move on from the walls. Set in the walls are 12 gates, three on each side with an angel in attendance at each. And we read in verse 12, the second part of verse 12, that on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, it's showing us here that this is no new religion that has been invented, but it has the heritage of God's working in the past. All those who in Old Testament times have been true children of Abraham, trusting in the Messiah who was to come, have passed through these gates, which are like a single pearl. We talk about the pearly gates. It comes from this verse, verse 21. These gates are, are pearls, each a gigantic pearl. Passing through the pearly gates, all those true believers from the Old Testament age, they can travel through them because these gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. But they're far from alone. If you look down at verse 24, for example, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. That's the city. The nations will walk by the city's light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor in, into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Just notice that. The splendor of kings will be brought into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. He's speaking to these churches in Asia Minor, largely composed of uh, Gentile believers. He says, look, I want you to understand, this is all continuity from the Old Testament. This is all the people of God down the ages. They'll all be there. But also the kings of the nations, good things from the nations. This is talking about continuity. This is very important, I think. Um, I, I nearly preached just on this verse because it seems to me it's, it's vitally important to understand that when the new heavens and the new earth come around, it's not going to be a complete, utter, complete, devastating conclusion to the old earth and uh, this is all made new it's all renewed just as we are renewed when we become christians we take our personality on when we become christians not not everything has changed is it we are the same people but we have been renewed and we are the as i often love to say the vanguard of the new creation we are the beginning of the new creation we're the beginning of this process this is the end of the process that we're reading about of the new creation but we're the beginning in this old creation, we are the beginning of the new creation. We're not totally different to what we were before we were converted. And so it is that the new creation, that even what's brought into the, into the new heavens and the new earth, there will be continuity of some kind. Whatever was good, whatever was virtuous. And, and it is encouraging for Christians to bear in, in, in mind that what they think of as being their own paltry efforts at, at living as, as Christians, the little things they do, it's far from fruitless. It isn't all going to be burnt up at the end. 
what is good in your life, whatever the Holy Spirit has encouraged and inspired in you to live for Jesus, this is going to last forever. It's going to be brought through the gates <coughs> into, the, um, into, the, into the holy city. I always love those, that verse, or a couple of verses, uh, in Revelation chapter 14, where John says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. That's a great verse. It's like preaching that on, on, on funeral services, funerals of believers. It's a tremendous verse. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Isn't that encouraging? You know, whatever you've done for the Lord, whatever the Lord has helped you to do, as a co-worker of his, in his power alone, it's there forever. It's going to enter into the holy city through those pearly gates. And uh, that's, that's what it means when we read those verses there. <coughs> the splendor will be brought into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And so that's, I think, a great encouragement to us. And then we read um, in verse 14 of chapter 21, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So gates, uh, walls to start with, gates, and then foundations. And um, here, just as the, um, the gates spoke about Old Testament saints, so the foundations speak about New Testament believers. Every true New Testament believer in Jesus is represented here um, by the apostles on the foundations. I don't know whether you're interested in genealogy or whether you've traced your ancestors back um, as far as you can. Um, mine were a pretty rum lot and I can't trace them back very far at all. But anyway, you may be more fortunate and you may trace it back. I've heard people boast that they can trace their, their ancestors back to, I don't know, William the Conqueror or something like that. Um, but all of us can trace our spiritual genealogy. And you may know the start of that line. You may know the person who spoke to you of Christ, who was instrumental in your conversion, and you thank God for them. And then you could trace, if you were able to, who was instrumental in their conversion, and so on and so forth. <coughs> but what you can guarantee is that eventually you can trace your conversion back to one of the apostles. And, uh, of course, ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ himself but certainly to one of the apostles. And so all of us have this spiritual heritage. Our faith is not something that comes just out of the air, but virtually without exception, everyone who is a true believer came because of the testimony of somebody else in their life, that spiritual genealogy. And uh, these apostles are there. They're all described as being precious jewels in the New Jerusalem. And just something else to add on that, is we might have expected, because of the chronology of it, the timing of it all, that the 12 tribes of Israel should be on the foundations and that the New Testament apostles might have been on the gates. After all, you start by building a foundation, don't you? And isn't the foundation the Old Testament? And based on the foundation of the Old Testament, you have the New Testament built up. So logically, <coughs> it might have seemed 
that the foundation should be named after the, um, the tribes of Israel and the, um, the, uh, uh, the gates should be named after the New Testament apostles. I don't suppose that's ever troubled any of you before, but uh, this just shows you the strange mind I have. But in fact, of course, the New Testament answers that own, its own um, question because Christ's church is, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 20, Christ's church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the New Testament prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So it just gels very nicely, doesn't it, with that passage of, from the Apostle Paul that John would have been familiar with. The foundation is the apostles of the Lamb. Also reminds us of something else, I think, that the Old Testament is always to be interpreted in the light of the New. The New Testament is foundational for our faith. And it is through the New Testament, through our understanding of the New Testament, that we interpret the Old Testament. This is why, of course, the apostles were astonished at some of the um, interpretations that Jesus gave them of Old Testament scriptures. Even though they'd been brought up from infancy in their Sabbath schools and were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures in a way that none of us, I imagine, are, nonetheless, they had never heard interpretations of the Old Testament scripture such as Jesus gave them and said, look, it's all about me. Can't you see it here? Can't you see it there? They said, wow, it's mind-blowing. And all of these interpretations appear, or many of them appear in the New Testament. And Old Testament scholars look at them and say, how do they think now they get that? Well, it's because Jesus told them. We interpret the Old Testament in the light of the New. The Old Testament is not foundational. The New Testament is foundational in our interpretation of the New. The apostles are foundational, not the tribes of Israel. It's important to understand that, isn't it? And uh, there it is, given to us in this wonderful picture that we have. Then finally, and very briefly, John is led inside the New Jerusalem. It's just five more verses to consider very briefly. In chapter 22, we, we, instead of looking at from the, from the outside and seeing external features, um, the, the, the walls and the gates and the foundations, now we're led into the, the city <coughs> in chapter um, 22. Just five verses, very simply. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will be, there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That repetition of the idea of the light is coming from within and not from without because of the, the, the Lord and, and, and the Lamb. And, and, and so it is. Again, three things, I think, are the focus of John's attention. First of all, and, and in many ways most importantly, because it it's represents the presence of God. First of all, there is the throne of God and of the Lamb. And we're told that in verse 1 of chapter 22. But um, he doesn't just leave it there in verse 1. Uh, he is so staggered and amazed and full of wonder as a result of this that it's actually repeated then again in verse 3. I, I love that because uh, there it is. Uh, in verse 3, we know the throne of the God and the Lamb are there. We've been told that in verse 1. But he says, 
hang on, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. As though he's saying, I know you find it hard to take in, but it's absolutely true. The throne of God and the Lamb are in the city. They're in the midst of the church. And I think that repetition, that emphasis, is something that we should take um, very seriously. That's the most incredible thing of all. And I mentioned earlier um, Ezekiel's uh, um, pictures of the New Jerusalem. But this does remind me of Ezekiel's response uh, that he has to, to the vision of, of the New Jerusalem as, as, as he received it, which in fact, if you were to look at it, chimes so very well with the Apostle John's. But in Ezekiel, in those closing chapters uh, of Ezekiel, uh, having uh, described the gates of his New Jerusalem in, in much the same terms as the Apostle, his final words are the very last words of the book of Ezekiel. And they always strike me as being incredible because they're written in capital letters in our Bibles. The very last words of the prophet Ezekiel, the end of that very long book, uh, we read, and the name of the city from that time on will be, capital letters, the Lord is there. Always strikes me as being an amazing ending to that that prophecy. There it is in capital letters. The Lord is there, and and the prophet is is full of wonder in the same way as I think the apostle John is, because this has been the aim of everything, for the Lord to dwell with His people, because ever since the Garden of Eden and because of the entrance of sin, God has been separated from His people to such an extent that people can even deny the existence of God. That's how bad it's got but they will dwell with his people. The Lord is there. And we read in verse 3, the throne of the God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Of course they will, because we owe him absolutely everything. And verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. This is the ultimate privilege of the children of God. Um, it's what theologians refer to as the beatific vision, that we shall see God's face. We shall see God's face not just and live, but we shall see God's face and enjoy him forever. That is the most glorious thing. I don't know what you're looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth, and maybe meeting relations, beloved people, and so on and so forth, and whatever you're going to be doing. But however we imagine it, the greatest thing will always be the fact that we shall gaze on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We shall see his face. And many, many times in the Old Testament, this uh, longing is expressed. Think of David's words in Psalm 17 and verse 15, where he says, as for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. Job, you know, I will see him with my own eyes. And so on, you've gone. Many, many references there. But it's a glorious thing. The most wonderful thing of all is that the presence of God means there's the Father, there's the Lamb upon the throne, and we shall see his face and just be completely transfixed and vindicated by that
glorious, glorious sight. So there's the throne and there's the river. It's the second thing. Just as a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, we read in Genesis chapter 2, so flowing from the throne, John sees the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. And it's the same water of life that's referred to back in chapter 21 and verse 6, where he says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And here again, I think, is a message from the future to the present. Only those who've had their spiritual thirst quenched by Christ in this life will find themselves in the new Jerusalem where they'll never thirst again. This glorious river picture flowing through um, the whole of the city. And then last of all, we read of the tree of life, don't we? From which Adam and Eve, because of their sin, were barred by terrifying angels and a flaming sword just in case they tried to re-enter Eden. I don't suppose one moment they ever tried it. But I mean, just the sight of these cherubim guarding the, the access to the Garden of Eden with these flaming swords, I think would have put them off uh, for life, even if they thought they could possibly have got back in. But there it was. And uh, this, uh, they were barred from the tree of life. So they couldn't eat the life and be sealed in their sin and live eternally as sinful beings. But here, it's all reversed. Now we read in chapter 22 and verse 2, um, down the middle of the great river of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Because sin and death have been defeated and destroyed, God's curse is removed from his creation and only his eternal life-sustaining blessings remain. And it's not only that God grudgingly says, oh, well, okay, you might as well have the tree of life now and go to that. Not at all. Look at verse 14. We didn't read this verse, but chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. They may have the right to the tree of life. That's astonishing, isn't it? That we have eternal rights. You know, we often say as Christians, you know, don't exert your rights. You think that's not a very Christian thing to do. Remember your responsibilities, whatever it may be. But we have eternal rights because of what God has done for us in Christ. These are the rights of the new man, the rights of the new humanity. And we might say the greatest right of all is access to the tree of life from which Adam and Eve were barred because of their sin. And now we have a right to the tree of life. And we shall feed upon it forever. We shall never die. We shall be nourished by it forever by the grace of God. It's the most in 
glorious thing. God always intended man to, be, to have access to the tree of life, and now it's been restored and he has a right to it. How things have changed in the new creation, how things have changed in the new Jerusalem, the church of God. No wonder he who was seated upon the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. Now, I don't know what this vision does for you. Maybe something has struck you here. I mean, go away and meditate. Maybe just something has come from what I've said this evening which strikes you as being um, new or you'd never thought about it quite like that before. Well, that may be exactly what the Lord wants you to think about. Probably is. Go away and think about that. Go away and meditate about it. Go and question it. Go and talk to one another about it. This vision of the New Jerusalem was given and designed to excite our expectation and kindle our hope of the new heavens and the new earth. And I just want to close with one final verse, uh, the Bible's final and most urgent invitation in verse 17 of chapter 22, where it says, The Spirit, that is God himself, and the bride, that is the church, they unite and they say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. So, you know, Revelation ends as, uh, with an evangelistic appeal. It ends, it's not just a mystery document for the benefit of the saints to give them comfort, but it says, look, let's be active saints. This is your privilege. This is what is to come. This is what your future holds. And as a result of that, let's live this life now actively witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can encourage as many other people as well to join us there.